podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, inspiring centuries of scientific progress. In the episode of the podcast entitled Improving Clinical Trials Through Wearables Technology, which came out on January 20th of this year, we looked at some of the issues and complications involved in bringing a new medication to market. As we heard, it's a tremendously long and expensive process. Between the scientific work itself and the multi-stage testing process that's required to prove that the new treatment is effective and safe, it can take many years, a decade even, and the average cost is over a billion dollars for each new drug. That cost and time lag raise an issue that we're going to explore today. And it might be the most controversial, emotional, ethically complex subject we've ever addressed on this podcast. It's what's called expanded access or pre-approval access to experimental medications. Basically, the question is this. If there's a new medication or medical device that has not yet been fully tested and approved, but has the potential to make a difference in the prognosis for someone who's dying of a terminal disease, should it be provided to them before it's available on the market generally? I'm sure almost everyone listening to this had some answer to that question form in your mind as soon as you heard me ask it. And I bet that for a large percentage of you, that answer was, yes, of course, anything we can do to help a dying person should be done. But it turns out this is actually a remarkably complicated question, with people of goodwill on every possible side of it. And it was the subject of a passionate and often emotional two-day conference at the Academy on October 28th and 29th of 2015, entitled Pre-Approval Access, Can Compassion, Business, and Medicine Coexist? It was presented by the NYU School of Medicine and the New York Academy of Sciences with sponsorship from Johnson & Johnson. Here's Dr. Arthur Kaplan, founding head of the Division of Medical Ethics at the NYU School of Medicine and one of the organizers of this conference. I think the major moral challenge is how do you do clinical trials on new agents, new drugs, new devices, new vaccines, while showing concern for people who are dying now or becoming disabled now. The dying and the soon to be severely disabled don't have the same stake in trying to figure out what's safe and effective for future patients as the rest of us do, or as government must in trying to manage forward, or as regulators do, and even as physicians sometimes do. So in English, the biggest ethical tension is, we have something new, we wanna prove that it works, and we wanna prove that it's safe. But from the point of view of someone who's very sick right now, they don't have time for that proof necessarily to be established, or they would accept less evidence about safety and efficacy than others might. That really is a core, core tension. At this event, and in what you're about to hear, a lot of very smart, very qualified people have some very different views, and sometimes directly contradictory views on the way things are in this regard and how they got that way and what the best way to move forward is. So please be advised that everything you'll hear is the opinion of an individual speaker and not necessarily anyone else's. Having said that, let's dive in, starting with a case study. 
particularly heated battle over pre-approval access to a particular drug for a particular patient that brought this issue to the attention of millions of people around the world, many for the first time. It's a story that starts with a tiny pharmaceutical company based in North Carolina called Chimerics. In 2008 and 2009, they were making strong progress with their first potentially marketable drug, an antiviral medicine called Brinsidofavir. Here's Ken Mock, who was Chimerics' CEO at the time. In phase one and phase two clinical testing, Brinsidofavir had shown the potential for enhanced safety and antiviral potency against what are called double-stranded DNA viruses. Uh, they're herpes viruses, which, uh, including one called cytomegalovirus, which affects about 85% of the population, papillomaviruses, which cause human warts, polyomaviruses, smallpox, and adenovirus. Now, with the exception of smallpox, all of those are very common and usually very mild diseases. Adenovirus is what we usually refer to as the common cold. But for people with compromised immune systems because of another disease, like AIDS or cancer, these usually fairly benign infections can be deadly and very hard to treat. And so, not surprisingly, when Chimerics published promising results from their initial clinical trials, requests started coming in from clinicians around the country and around the world who wanted to try it with terminally ill patients. This is a kind of pre-approval access that is sometimes called compassionate use. These pre-approval access programs had started in 2009 as a series of individual physician-requested, physician-sponsored emergency INDs. Um, and then the pace had rapidly evolved via word of mouth. And the evidence of this demand curve was extraordinary. The first 50 requests occurred over nine months. The second 50 requests occurred over three months. Ultimately, Brinsadofavir was made available to individual patients, over 215 individual patients in this manner. This was the first of several times over the years that they made the drug available for pre-approval use. But each time this kind of use was granted, it cost significant man-hours and money for Chimerics to provide the drug in this way. And so eventually the company, which didn't have a marketable product yet, so was existing entirely on seed funding, felt like they had to make some hard choices about what they were able to provide and to whom. If everybody over there asked for the drug and we said no, and this nice lady in the first robes, we gave it to her, how would you all feel? And if you now all needed the drug, what would you do, right? What would, would you say, okay, we gave it to her, but we're gonna let the company have a pass now? No, you'd want it. And if while we're doing this, we didn't have the resources, small company, and you all over here in this third section, three years from now need the drug, but it's not yet approved and you die, or your loved one dies, how do you feel about that moral dilemma? Because it starts with saying something that you know you can't meet those needs. And it swamps a small company with limited resources, and who knows if you're gonna be able to complete even your major phase three clinical trial. Chimeric stopped accepting new requests for compassionate use. Here's where things get complicated. A seven-year-old boy named Josh Hardy who was a patient at St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee, was dying of adenovirus. He had been suffering from various forms of cancer since he was nine months old. First of the kidneys, then the thymus, then the lungs, and then finally of the bone marrow. This last attack was treated with a bone marrow transplant, which was successful in fighting the cancer, but left him with a severely weakened immune system. 
So when he caught what would be an irritating cold in a normal person, it was for him a terminal condition. His doctors at St. Jude's made two separate requests to Chimerics for pre-approval access to Brincidofavir, and both were denied, as around 300 other requests had been denied over the previous several years. What made this case different was how Josh Hardy's family reacted to this denial. It started with his mother writing an open letter and posting it on Facebook. Here's what she wrote, and I quote, Our son, Josh Hardy, who recently had a bone marrow transplant, has developed adenovirus. This is a deadly virus for people who have weak immune systems. There is a drug called Brinsadofavir, which has been proven to treat adenovirus effectively. Our doctor at St. Jude told us he ran the study for the drug company and he knows it will work. However, the drug company has refused to release the drug for compassionate care because they are trying to take it to market. Basically, they are not going to save a child's life for money." Unquote. Now, it's worth noting that there are several important points in that letter that are really not accurate. First, it had not been proved that Brinsadofavir would cure Josh Hardy. There had been some promising research on the use of Brinsadofavir to treat adenovirus, but it was very far from settled science, and those studies had been in adults, not in children, who are different. They have different reactions to things, require different dosages. So whether providing this medication to Josh would save his life was really a crapshoot. And while there's some truth in the only doing it for the money contention, Chimerics was and is a for-profit company, it's hardly the whole story. Ken Mock and the people he worked with really did believe that processing compassionate use requests were going to delay the delivery of this medicine to thousands of people whose lives it could save if they could finish the trials and make it available. But having said that, it'd be impossible to not sympathize with Josh Hardy's mother. Her son was dying, and there was a medicine that could potentially save him. Of course she's going to do whatever it takes to get that medicine. What parent wouldn't? Even Mr. Mock, for whom we'll see this did not end well, says he would have done the same thing had he been in her position. Look, I think that each of us, if it were our family member, would do exactly what everybody did in this case, and frankly, every other parent of a child who, or, or loved one who has a life-threatening infection or disease would do. I think that's just a given and an absolute. And the plight of a dying seven-year-old being denied medicine by an uncaring drug company is the kind of story that the internet goes wild for. And it did. A hashtag Save Josh campaign began picking up steam on Facebook and Twitter, and soon was attracting the attention of local politicians and national news outlets like CNN and Fox, who began calling Chimerix's staff and board with interview requests. One of the people who was instrumental in bringing this story to a national audience was a retired lawyer named Richard Plotkin, who had started the nonprofit advocacy group the Max Cure Foundation when his own grandson was diagnosed with childhood cancer. Uh, I read the letter by uh, St. Jude and concluded that they came as close as possible to saying that this drug would save Josh's life. Uh, I then couldn't understand why the company wouldn't give him the drug, so I made my first call to uh, Ken Mock, the CEO of Comerix. Uh, he, I introduced myself. I asked him why he wasn't going to be giving the drug to Josh, uh, and he told me all the flowery language that you just heard. 
but keep in mind, forget equity, forget flowery language. As far as I was concerned, there was a seven-year-old boy that was going to die, and that St. Jude had said that this drug would cure him. If this boy did not get the drug, and if he died, I was going to destroy Comerics and destroy Ken Mock, and I meant it. What he did was engage his foundation's marketing department and instruct them to go all out on social media to try to publicly shame Chimerics and Ken personally, and to make that shaming a national story. On uh, Saturday, I called Erica Bailey, who's our marketing director out of Arizona, uh, and asked her to get involved. I said, find out who the large institutional investors are. Uh, I want you to get to them and tell them uh, that uh, they better get to uh, this mock guy who I said to Erica was uh, going to be the villain in our social media uh, play because everybody, every story needs a villain. Uh, she hit 1.1 million on Facebook, 400,000 on Twitter uh, to get behind the Save Josh campaign. Things then intensified even further as it became not just a national story, but an international one covered everywhere from England to Brazil and almost always with the unmistakable slant that this evil company in the name of profit was allowing a child to die. Here's Ken Mock again. The media mantra became that we didn't want to spend money to save Josh's life. Chimerix's management and board members were deluged with thousands of phone calls and emails, some of which included death threats. We hired corporate security for the corporate offices and the homes of the corporate leadership. And here's where the regulators got involved. Dr. Deborah Bernkrant led the group at the FDA that had been working with Chimerics on the clinical trials of brincidofavir since the beginning. And she was surprised to learn the name Josh Hardy and hear about the outcry surrounding him for the very first time one evening when she happened to turn on the television news. The company had uh, worked with other patients in similar situations and I was caught off guard. I didn't understand why in this particular case, with this little boy, with this major media campaign apparently, why were they saying no now? Fast forward 12 hours, I'm on my way to work, call the project manager that works with the Chimerics product. I said, get them on the phone, find out what's going on, and when I get to work, I wanna to talk to them. Part of her surprise was that Chimerics perhaps for reasons that we'll discuss in a moment, had not yet talked to the FDA about the number of compassionate use requests they had been getting or the possibility of doing any new clinical trials. They explained that they had received hundreds of requests to which we were not aware at all. And what struck me was, had we been aware of all of these requests, we would have worked even uh, more quickly to get a trial up and running, to try and capture the data from all these potential patients. In the end, it's up to the company whether they want to release the drug. But in my mind, this was not the case, and I said this to the company to say no to. The media storm was too major, and there were threats, and it was something I had never seen, even though I had been in that division for 26 years and had dealt with all kinds of other issues. And so the FDA and Chimerics designed a new trial, which Josh Hardy could be made a part of and got it up and running very quickly. Here's Mr. Mock. And on Tuesday evening, March 11th, 120 hours after the first Facebook post by Amy Hardy, Chimerics announced a unique solution. 
brinsadofavir would be made available to Josh as part of a 20-patient <coughs> open-label pilot trial that would lead to a pivotal phase three clinical trial for the treatment of adenovirus infections. This was not a single patient pre-approval access situation, but rather a formal clinical trial that had the potential to help many Joshes. Josh received brinsadofavir on Wednesday, March 12th, and according to his family, responded very well to the drug. He left the ICU on March 25th, nearly virus-free. Virus he is alive today, and according to his family's social media posts, he is growing stronger every day. In the aftermath of this, Chimerix's board of directors, which was understandably not thrilled about receiving death threats, asked for Mr. Mock's resignation, and he left Chimerix soon after. So what did we learn from all of this? To many who were involved in the campaign, everything they did was right and justified. Here's Nancy Goodman of Kids v. Cancer, another group that was instrumental in spreading Save Josh across the social media scape. It's not only that you have a little kid who's going to either literally live or die, it's that nothing Chimerix was doing at the time was going to provide more information about treating children or saving future Joshes. Chimerix is doing research for adults, like it has nothing to do with Josh. I am not at all condoning people making threatening calls to Ken or to others. I, of course, I think that's terrible. I still think we absolutely did the right thing. Mm -hmm. And you know what? If we hadn't done that, Josh wouldn't be alive. We wouldn't be here on the stage today. And in that, she actually raises some interesting points on both sides of the argument. It's true that Chimerix was only testing brinsadofavir in adults. And this campaign forced them not just to provide Josh Hardy with the drug, but to begin testing it in children as well. But what that also means is that there was no data about using the drug in children. And as we said, children can often respond very differently than adults. If nothing else, the proper dosing for a 40-pound 7-year-old is going to be very different than for a 150-pound adult. And no one really knew how different. And what would have happened to the future of brinsadofavir, its reputation, had it hastened Josh Hardy's death instead of preventing it? Here's Musa Meyer of the National Breast Cancer Coalition. What happens, given the world of social networking, when a drug not only doesn't work that's been accessed for compassionate use, but has really untoward toxicity, perhaps mm -hmm. leading to an early mm -hmm. death, and an outraged family discusses that drug. What happens if that drug could have benefited other people? What happens to the stock of the company that is developing it? I think that there are sort of unforeseen consequences of unfettered access mm -hmm. that really worry me. Uh, in that way. And it's actually that argument that has convinced Richard Plotkin, who was possibly the Save Josh campaign's biggest advocate, that they did not do the right thing in subjecting chimerics to public shaming via social media. I would not have done in social media at least what my foundation did and take the lead in the uh, Save Josh campaign. Uh, because of the potential ramifications if Josh was given the drug and died. What I've learned, I think that would have been dramatic. Here's Fred Guterell, executive editor of Scientific American magazine. 
there was a lot of emotion going on and um, it was contentious and yet everybody there I think had the best of intentions and um, and the story had a happy ending which is good um, but it would also illustrated how precarious things are how that that happy ending was a very precarious ending because it could have turned out um, very differently and it could have been very destructive like it or not a lot of that potential destruction has to do with the financial bottom lines of pharmaceuticals companies now I know that sounds somewhat less than compelling surely if anyone has enough money to spend on saving dying people it's big pharma the problem is that a lot of pharma actually isn't so big. Many of the companies working on experimental medications are actually just chemistry labs that have gotten the funding to turn themselves into startups. Here's Fritz Bitbender of the Biotechnology Industry Association. There are 1,200 biotechnology companies uh, in America, and 90% of those companies don't have a product on the market and they aren't profitable. They don't have the resources to do clinical trials and also do major expanded access programs uh, for, for many, many patients. And those resources are significant. It's not, as much of the media coverage of the Josh Hardy case implied, just a question of taking the medicine off a shelf and putting it in the mail. If you're working on an experimental medication, you're not really making more of it than you need to give to the patients who are already receiving it as part of the clinical trials. So to do expanded access, you have to make more of it. Then analyze the requests that are coming in to see which ones seem like they could actually be helped by the drug in question, and work with those physicians to determine the proper use and dosages and so forth, and then figure out how to transport the stuff, which may not yet be shelf-stable, to wherever it's going to be administered, and on and on. It's all tremendously complex and expensive. Here's Daniel McIntyre of the pharma company Biogen. We, we face the challenge of a, an expanded access program for an ALS compound. So it was a specific drug for a specific patient population at a specific time. A horrible disease with no adequate treatments. When we did this, we um, invested at risk a figure in the tens of millions of dollars to manufacture, presumptively manufacture a supply put together a modified phase 3B study, uh, which was our distribution mechanism, and to, to uh, round up the resources to, to actually make it happen. And that's a lot of money for any company, even a large one like Biogen. It's doubly difficult for a startup like Chimerics that did not as of yet have any actual income. And on top of that, there's real and often justifiable fear that pre-approval access may delay the completion of clinical trials. If you have a small company that's working on their first potentially marketable product, the success or failure of your clinical trials is the same thing as the success or failure of your company as a whole. If those trials, which are extremely complex and expensive, fail, the likely result is bankruptcy. And so you're going to be unlikely to want to do anything that jeopardizes them, either by reallocating your resources or by opening your product up to new scrutiny from regulatory agencies, because it's now being used in more people with less supervision. And ironically, the desperate need of biomedical researchers to get new funding to continue their research 
has, in a way, actually opened them up for more requests for pre-approval use. In order to interest investors, they have to show that a new product has real tangible promise for making a difference in healthcare, and thus being a viable commercial product. And that makes perfect sense. But to some, that has led to a kind of inflation of hyperbole about what early stage tests actually show, are even capable of showing. And that this hyperbolic language is often picked up on by the media, who don't have the time or knowledge to temper them with the clinical details of a particular study, and by the families of terminal patients, who are desperate to help their loved ones any way they can. Here's Dr. Peter Adamson of the University of Pennsylvania and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We have academic investigators who put a, a compound on a cell line in a culture dish and says it's promising for children with disease X. Well, we've created a large part of this mess that we're in because what we, what we don't do is we don't present balanced views of what the data does show and what it doesn't show and what we do know and what we don't know. And in that is another real danger of the media blitzkrieg around Josh Hardy. In his particular case, the doctors who were treating him felt that this particular drug stood a good chance of helping him. And everyone on all sides of the situation is sincerely thankful that they were right and that he's alive today. But with every published medical study available to anyone with the internet and a credit card, Who's to say that the next international social media campaign to grant compassionate use would be on such solid ground? And by firming up the idea that there's an adversarial relationship between the pharma industry and the patients who need the medications they make, maybe we're increasing the likelihood that very sick people and their families are going to take the law into their own hands when it comes to medical treatment. And that could really have severe consequences for everyone. Here's Mr. Plotkin again. And I, I talk, I look at the Josh Hardy situation as if it's the perfect storm. You had St. Jude's knew of the drug. The boy actually, when, when he got the drug on March 12th, I was told he was going to die by the weekend of March 15th. He's alive today. Everything seemed to coalesce. And what it did then is give the impression out there in the public uh, that these experimental drugs work. Maybe they will work and maybe they won't. But honestly, that's true of even a good percentage of treatments that are approved and widely available. And so on one level, what we have here is a failure of communication. People who are wrestling with terminal diseases need to understand that the idea of proven magic bullet medicines for deadly diseases that are being hoarded by evil pharma companies in the name of profit is really a myth. And likewise, pharma, medicine, and regulatory agencies need to understand that to a dying person, the idea that there's a treatment out there that they cannot try is just unacceptable. Here's Dr. Adamson again, who, as a pediatric oncologist, works every day with children with uncurable terminal diseases. When you're talking about life-threatening terminal diseases, you're going to lose the risk argument, right? You're just going to lose it because I'm going to die versus a theoretical or real risk of toxicity. So I, I don't think that's, that's the right discussion because it's an argument ultimately with any family you will lose. A big part of what patients and their families find so frustrating and unacceptable 
is the basic structure of the current primary system for getting cutting-edge medications to people suffering from debilitating diseases, the clinical trial. This frustration exists on several levels. First is the often maddening specificity of the qualifications for entering a trial. As we've talked about many times before, the scientific method itself is based on asking very specific questions. The more specific, the better. And so good clinical trials are often built around testing the effectiveness of a drug in a very narrow population. So you have the best chance of making sure that it's the effect of the drug you're seeing and not something else. What this means is that people are often excluded from trials for reasons that to patients and their families can seem arbitrary and unfair. For instance, often researchers want to test how a drug works against a particular phase of a disease. And so patients can be excluded from the study for being too sick or not sick enough. Here's Pat Furlong, a muscular dystrophy advocate who had two sons who suffered from a rare and particularly severe form of that disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy. So you can imagine if my two sons were here, they would have to have the right mutation, they would have to be above the age of seven, they would have to be below the age of ten, they would have to get off the floor in seven to ten seconds and walk in six minutes three to four hundred meters. Otherwise, eleven years old is too old, five-year-old is too young. And I'll tell you, so many families who have tried to qualify the, for these trials have a child that's 500 meters on the six-minute walk test to go into the physician's office and hear him say, or her say, come back when he's slower. The progression of the disease is a dive toward death. Mm -hmm. And loss of ambulation and loss of the ability to lift your arms and loss of the ability to breathe and needing uh, in, in, uh, support for ventilation are little deaths that these children and their families experience. A perhaps even bigger source of frustration and fear is that a large number of new drugs are tested by what's called randomized control trials, meaning that some percentage of the participants are put in a control group and don't get the medicine being tested. They get a placebo instead. And of course, no one wants to be in that group. Here's Mr. Bitbender again. Because one of the issues that our companies have frequently um, in clinical trials is a patient will try and go through an expanded access program um, because they know in an expanded access program they're going to get the medicine. Uh, many of our clinical trials are you know double-blinded placebo trials, and um, you know some people get some patients get medicine, some patients don't. Um, so you know that's the way the system has been designed right now, and what we're working with. And an increasing number of advocates for the terminally ill are questioning the value of randomized control trials altogether. The idea of them is to compare the outcomes of people who get the medicine and those who don't. But a growing argument goes, if we already know these people are going to die, if we know that everyone who's ever had this disease before has died from it, why do we need another control group? Can't we control against the people who aren't in the study or against the historical records of outcomes of patients who didn't receive this medicine? Here's Ms. Furlong. So what do patients want? What, what are their needs? And their needs are minimal or no exposure to placebo. Mm -hmm. We already have a prognosis. You already know what the outcome is. So more time, more time without whatever intervention it is means more of the prognosis that's going to occur, right? So patients don't want to be randomized. 
Chronic steroids are used in Duchenne. It took the medical community 10 years to recognize that it had benefit and 20 to get consensus. We can't do that. This, mm -hmm. we, we can't do this. That's lives gone. So no exposure to placebo or minimal exposure to placebo. And I, I think we have to design trials if we need to do randomized trials. Um, we have to do minimal exposure to placebo mm -hmm. and recognize that it has to be very short-lived. And while these kinds of trials have long been considered the gold standard for proving a medication's effectiveness, the regulatory guidelines do not always require them. Here's Dr. Martha Donahue from the FDA. I think we have an ethical responsibility to not dangle a treatment that we think is going to be effective to patients and then ask them to be in a randomized trial. And in fact, one thing that we look at before we approve a trial is we ask if there's equipoise. Is there really a question there? Do we really not know if standard of care is not is inferior to standard of care plus the drug that's being developed. And if, based on the data, we think that the answer to that question is, you know, we, we actually do know that, that the experimental arm is better, there's no place for a randomized trial. And so maybe the best way to solve the problems with pre-approval access is actually refining the approval process so more patients can get into clinical trials. Here's Stephen Walker of the Abigail Alliance. Pre-approval access doesn't work because it competes with the regulatory system as it's set up and has been set up for 50 years. It doesn't work because clinical trials, the way we do them now, are extremely unattractive to patients. No one wants to be randomized to a placebo under blinded conditions. No one wants to be put into a situation where they lose control of their lives. No one wants to be uh, used up in a trial to produce a p-value regarding uh, um, uh, an overall survival endpoint for a cancer drug. So some things need to change, and some things very fundamental in the way we develop drugs need to change. That kind of wholesale overhaul of the clinical trial system may be necessary and even inevitable, but it will not be quick. And so, in the meantime, how can pharmaceutical companies and patients and their doctors all be approaching pre-approval access in a way that gets people the medicines they need when they need them without having to resort to sending death threats to the people who make them. And as you've heard, this conference had a really wide range of participants debating that very question. Doctors, representatives of pharma companies, patient advocates, government regulators, lawyers, even journalists. And happily, there seemed to be a few basic points that almost everyone agreed on. One is that whatever system is in place, it should be fair. Unapproved drugs should be distributed based on need and not other factors. Here's Dr. Sandy McRae, Global Medical Officer for Takeda Pharmaceuticals. The first thing is it's got to be fair and transparent. And it has got to be un, um, unspoiled by either fame or fortune. By that I mean, I don't want someone calling up because they are the senator's daughter and they need access to, to the medicine. That's just wrong. And honestly, for some people, that's really what was most troublesome about the Josh Hardy case. He unquestionably needed that medicine. In hindsight, we can say that for certain. But that's not why he got it. He got it because of the skill at manipulating social media of the people who were advocating for him. You could say it was a victory of the successful marketing of Josh Hardy as tragic hero and Ken Mock as dastardly villain. And whether or not we're pleased with the outcome, there's a fundamental unfairness to that. 
Here's Dr. Kaplan. I'm not against social media campaigns, and that's a good thing, because even if I was, it wouldn't make a damn bit of difference. But um, I think they're not fair. It's just people who know how to do them get hurt. People who don't or don't want to give up their privacy, they don't get hurt as much. I hate to say this, but not everybody is visually attractive to the media. So certain things are just not going to uh, make it in terms of trying to command our sympathy and attention. And look, uh, if you're talking about the mainstream media, it's a news organization, it's not a charity. If you're the fourth case in a month in the Tampa St. Pete area who needs a drug, you're not gonna get covered. They've done two and they're not gonna continue to do them. It's not news anymore. It's news that the system isn't in place to help people make these requests, but you can't rely on the media. And I'm gonna probably guess even the social media, our compassion index, will wear out if we just see day after day, dozens of people trying to find things. You sort of begin to, to, to get um, immune to that type of uh, uh, pressuring. Here's Steve Usden, Washington editor for BioCentury, a biomedical industry publication. When there are situations when there are, there are limits to the number of people who can be helped, then there have to be equitable, transparent ways of figuring out how to allocate the resources, not just to say, well, we're not going to help anybody. If you have a limited supply, then there are different models that have been um, proposed to lotteries. Um, there, there are some yes. models where uh, you could say that, well, children would be prioritized, or you could say that, uh, like in organ donation, some of the models are that people who are likely to have a better outcome um, are prioritized. Some larger pharmaceutical companies are now taking the additional step of having an outside third party with no financial interest in the situation write their compassionate use policies, or at least advise on how they're written, so that they'll have something to point to when asked if their policies are fair and equitable. Here's Dr. Amrit Ray, chief medical officer of Janssen Pharmaceuticals, a division of Johnson & Johnson. That's what led to Janssen's outreach to uh, New York University, to uh, Art Kaplan and Alton Bateman House and others, to try and put together a new committee, the first of its kind in the world, and a committee that would actually comprise not only the medical experts, we, we actually have a lot of medical experts, but medical experts that had no tie to Johnson Johnson. A group of bioethicists, again, with no tie, and a group of patients and patient advocates who would be able to look at all of these requests that didn't fit into trials and didn't fit into EAPs, expanded access programs, and be able to say what are the questions that we need to ask, go through it with a common set of principles and being able to, I think, give us very thoughtful, objective feedback on what is it in terms of the decision that we should be making that is fair. And that's really the objective. And we really can't let the subject of fairness go past without acknowledging the fact that there are deep inequalities in healthcare in general. People with greater financial resources get better access to care in every way. And of course, that extends to pre-approval access. Here's Danielle Leach of St. Baldrick's Foundation. As a former patient navigator, the number one phone call I got was, I can't pay for things, or I can't pay the copay, or I, you know, financial issues is a primary thing for approved drugs. 
not even for expanded access. So it, that problem has to be looked at consistently and, and looking for solutions because that is honestly the number one phone call that anybody who serves patients probably receives. Because even if the pharmaceuticals company is doing their best to be as fair as they can in distribution, they'll only know about you and your case if you or your doctor reaches out to them. And the likelihood of that is really a function of the quality of care you're receiving, which unfortunately is closely tied to what you can afford. Navigating that process of finding what's out there is scouring the internet late at night. Your physician, depending on where you are and depending what institution you are, even in some great institutions, may not have be up to date on all that is available or all that is out there and cutting edge. Here's Dr. Allison Bateman House of the NYU School of Medicine, another of the conference's organizers. It's just hard to find a doctor, let alone a doctor who knows what's coming down the pipeline for your particular condition um, or what devices are being tested that would be of use of you. Um, and then once you do find that doctor and once you do find the knowledgeable doctor, it's hard just to figure out how to do the, the, the request. Who do you contact? You know, what information do they need? So there's a need for education and not only of patients or even of patient advocacy groups, but of the physicians themselves. And that opens up the second point about which there was general agreement. The current system really isn't a system. There's no standard for how companies should make information available about what opportunities there might be to either participate in a study or receive expanded access. And while the government runs a database of what's currently being studied and tested and by whom, most people in the field seem to agree that it just isn't very good, incomplete, inaccurate, and hard to use. Fixing either or both of these things would make it much easier for patients to feel like they're able to access experimental treatments without having to resort to the bully pulpit of a public campaign. Here's Ms. Leach, followed by Dr. Kaplan. Once you get to a certain part of the pathway, you're kind of lost and you need to, that's where the potential for navigation, the potential for clear access point for information for both physicians and for patients on what's next is critical. People should not have to guess or figure out through connections who to ask at a company should know where to go, even if the answer is going to be no. The companies need to have their websites up, user-friendly, and probably listing their policies about what they will and won't make available and why, so that at least people know. And here's Dr. Ronald Crawl of the University of Pittsburgh. There could be an app for that, you know? <laughs> um, in fact, it's, I, it, it, it's, it's kind of inexcusable to me that we've developed in this nation uh, uh, an electronic health care record system health, that doesn't have in it um, every time you see your doctor, you know, you could be a candidate for these four clinical trials. And there's real urgency for the industry to get this right. Because in the absence of clear industry-wide policies and systems, government is starting to get involved. One example is a recently proposed bill in the U.S. House of Representatives called the CURE Act for Compassionate Use Reform and Enhancement that would actually mandate these kinds of open communication policies for pharma companies. Here's Dr. Bateman House. 
And it basically requires a manufacturer or distributor of one or more investigational drugs for the diagnosis, monitoring, or treatment of one or more serious diseases or conditions shall make publicly available the policy on evaluating and responding to expanded access requests. Um, and this would include such things as a contact number, so you know upfront who to contact, uh, a procedure for making a request, uh, sort of general criteria that the, the company or the manufacturer uses in evaluating that request, and a length of time within which you will receive an answer. While that bill seems more or less in line with the best practices being proposed at this conference, more controversial are the so-called right-to-try laws now being enacted in many states, which attempt to mandate that the government will not deny people pre-approval access. Here's Christina Sandifer, Executive Vice President of the Goldwater Institute, which is actively lobbying for the passage and inaction of these laws nationwide. It is a basic constitutional and human right to fight for one's life, and the laws of this land should reflect that. When people are fighting for their lives, compassionate use should be the rule and not the exceptions. Terminal patients should not have to beg the federal government for permission. While these bills have passionate advocates, many at this conference feared that they'll be ineffectual or worse. This is largely because they only have jurisdiction over regulatory agencies like the FDA, not pharma companies or doctors. And paradoxically, in many cases, these laws seem to be more restrictive than existing FDA policy. Here's Richard Klein, director of the FDA's Patient Liaison Program. From what I'm looking at, I'm, I'm looking at all these right-to-try laws, and they're actually tighter and more restrictive than the FDA requirements for expanded access. But I think what also complicates things is that from state to state, they vary. So to me, you've got a, a national umbrella system in place, which is actually more liberal and easier to use than some of these right to tries. And I didn't think that the right to try added anything because essentially some of the mirror the, the regular FDA or national uh, requirements, but I think they remove some of the guardrails that provide safety for patients who, who enroll in those, those things. Here's Mr. Walker again. If we don't figure out a way to do this, it's going to happen by legislation. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen soon. And the reason for that is, and the reason there is so much support for this now and people coming to the table, isn't just because there's a lot of patient groups calling for it and social media campaigns. It's the pressure of real progress. We're getting better at understanding the biology of disease. We're getting better at coming up with drugs to treat it. And we're not at the beginning, we're into it. So as we get better at inventing drugs that actually help the first 10 patients who get them, or most of them, the pressure to deliver is only going to mount. And those are the drugs that most of the time patients are trying to get, the ones for which there is evidence that it works and they just can't get to them. Will this increased pressure result in a government takeover of this process? Only time will tell, of course, but Mr. Walker isn't alone in that fear. No matter what happens, there are two final points about which there was general agreement at this conference. First, that the CEO of a biotech startup shouldn't have to be in the position of making life or death decisions about individual patients. 
Second, that patients with terminal diseases and their families shouldn't have to worry that they're missing opportunities to find better treatments. Here's Mark Booten, CEO of the National Health Council. I don't want any other patient or family caregiver to spend the last months of their lives struggling to try and get access to something. We need a much more equitable process that is user-friendly so that people can live their last few months of lives and not deal with this as their top priority. It should not be the top priority for any person living or dying of a condition. Thanks for listening to the New York Academy of Sciences podcast. This episode was produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Carrie Kasten, and with administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Melanie Brickman-Steins and Dr. Eric Tatro. Special thanks to all the experts who appeared in this episode, Kenneth Mock of Euclidean Life Science Advisors, Richard Plotkin of the Max Cure Foundation, Fred Guterell of Scientific American, Nancy Goodman of Kids v. Cancer, Musa Mayer of National Breast Cancer Coalition, Dr. Peter Adamson of the University of Pennsylvania, Dr. Deborah Bernkrant, Dr. Martha Donahue, and Richard Klein of the United States Food and Drug Administration, Fritz Bittenbender of Biotechnology Industry Organization, Daniel McIntyre of Biogen, Dr. Arthur Kaplan and Dr. Allison Bateman-House of the NYU School of Medicine, Pat Furlong of Parent Project Muscular Dystrophy, Stephen Walker of Abigail Alliance, Dr. Sandy McRae of Takeda Pharmaceuticals, Steve Usden of BioCentury, Dr. Amrit Ray of Janssen Pharmaceutical Companies of Johnson & Johnson, Danielle Leach of St. Baldrick's Foundation, Dr. Ronald Crawl of the University of Pittsburgh, Christina Sandifer of the Goldwater Institute, and Mark Booten of the National Health Council. All the presentations excerpted for this podcast were from the event Pre-Approval Access, Can Compassion, Business, and Medicine Coexist? at the New York Academy of Sciences, October 28th and 29th, 2015, which is co-presented by the Academy and the NYU School of Medicine. You can find an Academy e-briefing of the complete event at nyas.org slash publications slash e-briefings. That event and this podcast were made possible with the generous support of Johnson & Johnson.